not record, uh, record uh, demos software. But let's move on to the today's lecture. Where did we stop? Hopefully it will work in this. Start dealing with very low probabilities, uh, then you will have other other problems like precision in the computer uh, CPU. Uh, okay, um, I think I also showed this picture that cluster is different uh, pixel values, the colors. So one could discretize the color space instead of uh, red, green, blue. Uh, all the uh, three colors, you could say that all represent all these different color values by just a single yellow, for example. This the color space. Uh, a 
okay, I will, yeah, I think I, I saw somewhere in here that uh, K means produces this kind of split of the space uh, that is called the Voronoi diagram. So there is a center, and the Voronoi diagram is, is the space uh, dividing the area so that area that is closest to this center In this kind of concept, you can also start thinking that maybe we can start to do some kind of uh, learning of, of uh, one types of objects, white from the black, so there will be white clusters, if possible, and black clusters. But uh, at the moment, we, again, uh, this is just a way to possibly think about uh, K-means. Uh, okay, I will... I stopped in here on that topic. Uh, these are the probabilities, sums over all the, all the probability space. We are not going to go in detail. Uh, there is a lot of software, of course, available in the statistical packages that you can use, like R. We have been recommended to use R heavily. Uh, ML Demos was one that I just showed you. For educational purposes, you can uh, use this. Uh, there are down standalone uh, downloads software like uh, uh, many different ones, uh, uh, multi-experiment viewer for the gene expression data analysis, but these really are generic clustering analysis tools where you can import the numeric data. And we have been ourselves working on, on these types of uh, some of these types of tools. Uh, okay, so what do we have by now? We have uh, said what is clustering, what we want to achieve, and we have said that uh, two heuristics is one is uh, hierarchical clustering, just everything that is closest put together and start merging into larger clusters, right? And we get the global global uh, dendrogram that shows the tree how the clusters were merged. A global dendrogram or a tree that represents how the clusters are split. But if you start top down, then you split. If you go bottom up, uh, agglomerative, then you merge the clusters into larger and larger clusters. Uh, what did we say about that? The, the hierarchical clustering is relatively slow if we call a polynomial algorithm slow. Uh, it's a quadratic time we need all against all distances in normal circumstances, right? And k-means for k clusters, for 10 clusters, we need 10 against every data point distances, maybe even can improve on that, but 10 times this uh, number of elements. And this repeated every cycle. So for very large data, that could be faster. Uh, but k-means does not give any, any order between the clusters, at least naturally. So one way to analyze very large data is uh, shown in here. Uh, you take large data, you first do k-means into many clusters, but then you do hierarchical clustering on top of the k clusters. 
you squeeze the data into k clusters, much smaller space, and then you do hierarchical clustering on top of that. So here, one row represents uh, 300 objects, 328 genes in this case, cluster number 21. But this is similar to cluster number 25 that has 285 genes. So now we can get a hierarchical view on top of the k-means clustering. Kind of get the ordering uh, through the hierarchical clustering. And uh, if I remember correctly, I also mentioned that if we do k-means, you can get different results, right? You don't know what is the starting point, what are the initial k-cluster. And there we said that you, you take a sample, you do hierarchical clustering to get k well-distributed centers. So it's, it's possible to combine these ideas together. Uh, yeah, and this is this is just one of the one of the uh, clusters in here that has all the objects. In this case, these are genes. Uh, these are different conditions from which uh, experiments have been uh, performed. Uh, we keep analyzing data in our group. Uh, this is a brand new tool, Clustries that does uh, some of the hierarchical clustering <coughs> both ways. You can choose also the different uh, uh, coloring schemes. Uh, you can get different annotations of attributes of, of uh, data. And uh, it does some more, uh, also some principal component analysis that I'm going to show you today. Uh, okay. Um, this is, this is a different type of tool that our group has been doing. Uh, in here, one column, I have, I have been telling you, heat map is sort of like represents one value. But in here, one column, one pixel, is not a single value. It's actually, uh, one column represents a big data matrix already. Big data is one column. What we show in here is how similar is this object of this row to the first that is a query. Is it similar or different? And similarity within one data set, one at a time. So we are actually making query across all the data, doing similarity search in each data set, and then ranking together all the answers, doing a little bit of clustering, systematization of these, and showing for the query which ones are most similar other, given all the different data sets. So you can imagine that there is a large data behind each column in here, and in fact, uh, the number of columns goes to thousands. The number of columns goes to thousands, uh, thousands of data sets across, across which we need to make a query. And, uh, and then some of the data sets are kind of irrelevant to us. So statistically, we have to first detect which data is relevant, then do the search in those data and systematize the answers. Uh, so this part was done the actual query and analysis, but this just shows uh, kind of the complexity of the, of the large data. 
but these kind of queries you can make uh, both in the web, in our web, uh, in, in our web site, and do basically within within a minute you get this kind of query done across very large data sets, collection of data sets. Okay, uh, so we have. Uh, I I think I don't stress enough all this. So we have very basic methods like Oracle to clustering, KDs. The other things you can build on top of those ideas. Next, we're going to have a very uh, look at a very important idea, what is called self-organizing map. Uh, so the philosophy is it that it's kind of neural network map. A neural network, uh, mankind has long time uh, tried to understand how, how our brain works, and we have figured out that there are neurons uh, in our brain, and each neuron does something, they are connected to each other, they pass messages, and then the uh, collective intelligence appears in the brain. So Evert is in the uh, group of, uh, to do the analysis, Evert, on this computational neuroscience. Actually, I am not doing You are not doing But we have a group of computational neuroscience in here that does a lot of this, trying to understand how the, how the brain works. Self-organizing map is kind of one type of uh, neural network uh, that uh, is kind of emergent behavior, tries to emerge the understanding of the data. And the goal is somehow to not calculate so much, but to somehow emerge the neural uh, or, or sort of landscape or map where one neuron should know something. Uh, every object that is somehow similar should be associated with one neuron. So all the Jennifer Aniston's should end up in one neuron. All the Brad bits should be in another neuron. And other neurons in the same region of the brain that knows about Jennifer Aniston, maybe there are variants of that or similar types of objects. So how do we get data analyzed so that we suddenly divide all our data to neurons so that each neuron types, uh, each neuron knows about certain type of objects. We, our neural map is very simple. It's you can make a grid of just neurons. In this case, five times uh, uh, seven, thirty-five neurons. So thirty-five uh, potential clusters. Uh, each neuron should know about one type of object or so-called cluster. And we want to have one type of objects in one cluster. That's the goal of clustering. One neuron should know about one type. How do we represent that knowledge? By making a representative description. Just like k-means is a centroid, just one vector representing the center point of the cluster. Also in here, one neuron knows this one description, one vector describing that cluster center. Ultimately, every object belongs to that cluster, very similar to k-means idea. Right? Every object belongs to one uh, neuron, 
to which it's closest, like 10 minutes. Uh, but the way how we learn this is different. Uh, the way how we learn uh, this and how this emerges is that, let's say, uh, hypothetically, already we have 35 clusters. Uh, but we have more data, or we have a very large data set. New data comes in. I take one vector, one object, and I go to this neural network map into the brain. It associates it to this network. That is the closest. The representation in here, I am closest, I belong to this network. But this is a new value, new, new object. And there is some description, old description. What we do, we don't show everything uh, over the board, and we don't put the, say that the new object is the new description. No. We say that this should be over there, but since this is a new object, new instance in this cluster, let's modify this representation a little bit. The new thing comes in, let's make sure that this gets closer to the new vector. We change representation a little bit. Yeah? We teach this neuron to recognize better in future the same object. Uh, and this is for, for one cluster, but the very important thing is how the map organizes is that we also say that actually around this cluster the others should be as similar as possible. So we change this cluster a little bit, but also the neighborhood, by some neighborhood uh, definition, we change the neighborhood also to resemble the new the newcomer data object. If we change this uh, by, say, we step 30% closer to the new object, in here maybe we only go to 10% go closer. So we teach more the center, and less the neighborhood. If the neighborhood gets bigger, we can have even less for next neighborhood. But that somehow ensures that the cluster in here, represented by one representation, uh, gets improved, but also the neighborhood gets improved a little bit. Uh, so, if, uh, if these are the input vectors, so the photos in this case, you have to think that one object can be represented as a very complicated vector. Photon, uh, for example. Then these guys that are very similar to each other end up in the neighborhood, neighborhood cells. And this may be very different, ends up somewhere else. Yeah, but other ladies of the similar type end up in the same cell, and other ladies similar but not exact will end up in the neighborhood in there. The way how this neighborhood emerges and this organization emerges is kind of arbitrary, depending on the starting points. It, it emerges uh, as we teach uh, the network. So that's why it's self-organizing maps. Uh, what we do is you take all the data, huge data set, and you randomly start teaching from here in potentially random order. Maybe you go through the data not once, but depends on how, how large your data is. Maybe you go through the data 10 or 1,000 times, 
but you emerge the uh, cell form as a map in this form. Uh, in here, the photos, in here, the text documents, so the similar text uh, documents talking about the same topic. How do we know that? Documents are different. Your way to write about one topic is different from yours. But you talk about the same topic, you use the same words, and no literature student uses the same words. The words that you know and use are somehow specific to this topic. Literature students write about other topics, their documents are different. So based on the keyword uh, frequencies, etc., you can compare the document similarity, and then you can sort of build a semantic map by just training with large body of documents this kind of neural network uh, so that similar topics end up in the similar region of this self-organizing map. Uh, you take uh, gummy bears and you have to emerge this kind of organized map. That's the idea. Uh, or this uh, organization of the data. Organizing the data into one, two, three, four, five, five clusters or five, uh, uh, five types of objects. Theo Kohonen was uh, the guy who, in the 1970s, uh, really uh, pushed forward this idea, and he was working on these neural network kind of ideas when neural network research was made unpopular. So in the beginning, when the neurons were defined, the single neuron calculating something, giving one bit of output, uh, does, not know, does not do too much. It just calculates the weighted sum of the values of the inputs, and then outputs, is it larger or smaller than some threshold? So you get inputs, and you output one bit Okay, it can be numeric value. This one neuron does not know how to do much. And uh, when it was uh, made clear that one neuron cannot do much, for example, it cannot calculate x or function, exclusive or. It cannot. Because you can't make one claim that is on top you have larger or, or smaller values. XOR is something where you need two planes, right? With a single neuron, you can do one plane. <laughs> that, therefore, neural networks were declared really bad and banned research for some 10, 20 years. And of course, uh, uh, later, of course, you start thinking, actually, there are many neurons that work together, make the hierarchies of neural networks, neural neurons. And, uh, and nowadays, over the last couple of years, the very deep neural network research has emerged. So huge networks that learn little by little, every node learning very little, but the collective knowledge emerges through the network. Uh, so self-organizing maps is also called sometimes Kohonen maps uh, because of this uh, uh, author from Finnish as um, a university of technology that is now out of university. Uh, 
So basically, I describe the idea that one neuron uh, is represents just one vector, and you can take in the vector input, sort of way which one gets the best response, or which, to which vector, to which neuron this uh, vector input vector resembles the most, and then you train a little bit that node, but also the neighborhood uh, node. So that's that's how it really works. Just goes through the data, uh, throws it into one network, adjusts it a little bit, and the neighborhood a bit less. But by training long enough, you get uh, the nice emergent patterns of countries. All the countries organized by some economic indicators. This is from 1992. Uh, so just after the Soviet Union collapse, uh, so the political map has been different, but uh, maybe you can identify that Colombia and Peru are in here, Denmark, Great Britain, Norway are in here, uh, Austria, uh, Germany, France, nearby Netherlands, Japan, Hungary, Poland, Portugal, Bulgaria, Czech Republic. So it, it kind of one neuron has similar types of countries, but the neighborhoods are also similar. Kind of different, but similar. And then you can sort of try to map, try to uh, visualize by the similarity by some color on top of this neural network, self-organizing map. Uh, oh yeah, if you hear the African countries, uh, the, the colors come from, from this map actually. Uh, if this is somebody's uh, Java implementation of uh, some uh, represented by colors, some initial values, you can start from the very random uh, center points, random uh, uh, clusters, but when you start pitching, and uh, when you get it, make this more bright, uh, bright uh, blue, then you also make the neighborhood brighter close the blue, right? So that is the intuition. Uh, the, the most similar, of course, is defined by the distance measure. Uh, it, it can be as simple as Euclidean distance uh, that we have always used, or some other uh, measure. And the neighborhood can be something that is somehow linearly, the further you go, the less you teach the neighborhood or some Gaussian that this is the winner node, and immediately when you go further away, you don't train those nodes. Yeah? You can make it more, more broad or narrow by this neighborhood function. Binary vector of, uh, of different animals, Tiger, lion, horse, zebra, cow, eagle, owl, goose. Are they small, medium, or big? <coughs> Do they have two or four legs? Do they have hair, hooves? Uh, mane, caveat, I think. Uh, feathers. Do they hunt, run, fly, or swim? Binary decisions, right? And then you trade based on these data, you get uh, uh, peaceful. Animals in here, the, the carnivores in here, the uh, birds in there, in this uh, self-organizing map view. 
the document clustering web. Some uh, research was published that is actually from 1995, perhaps long time ago, when the web documents were really mostly Usenet news group articles. So taking all the Usenet news group articles and uh, getting different uh, uh, different uh, uh, topic maps, but then showing that neural computing in this area topics related to neural computing, there is mining, uh, exploration, packages, and meaning, uh, semantics, etc. So somehow all the documents are on this map, and by showing some keyword, you can navigate perhaps to find documents in this category. Okay, um, uh, that was about self-organized maps. It, well, it's very important um, uh, concept that you take the data, you try to train the, the neuron, um, My question is, uh, was this sufficient level of explanation? Because I have uh, uh, received these complaints sometimes when students start to do this. Uh, of course, before you implement yourself, you do not understand that. That's very easy. If you do not implement, you do not understand. At least you should be intuitively getting to the level that, yes, I could try to implement that. And then understand the topic better. So, the way how I describe it is that there are these neurons. This is a very static map. And if, uh, if some, some vector, for example, this tries to represent A, this is some description of A, if I make in, I don't know, this A goes in, then I get the new instance, and then I make it more Right? Somehow this description is different from that. I change that a little bit, and maybe uh, this one as well. Maybe the B letter will be somehow uh, nearby if they are similar. This is very ad hoc explanation. The other way to understand is that if you have data like uh, like we had in the case of K means. Then what we try to do is we try to overlay the map of neurons. And let's start from some random initial guess. Initial guess is that this one is the one neuron, this one, and that one. We make a grid of three by by, by three. If this is our initial guess, the nine starting points, in, back in the K-means classroom, we start from K uh, starting point, but in here they are somehow in the green. So if we now, these are these uh, values in the map. If you now get, oh, let's train by this side, right? this comes into the map. Of course it should belong to this node, right? 
So how we train is we, we push the center a little bit closer to that newcomer. Okay? So we stretch it like that. We get a new representation. And if we get, keep getting these values in here, this ends up in the kind of approximately in the center of this cloud. Uh, the neighborhood would mean that also this one is stretched a little bit towards there. Maybe by not that much, but a little bit stretches in there. So if this is some rubber bands, then you pull it there, everything moves a little bit towards there, right? But the ones that are closer, they move closer, right? And, and by this kind of moving the cluster centers, uh, you cover the map. Any questions? Yes? You said that if you move one center, then one of the centers move. Not necessarily all, the neighborhood. The, 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 you define by this function how large the neighborhood is. Is it just the immediate neighborhood, or does it go even a little bit further? Okay, but uh, isn't this like uh, creating danger that we move some center out from the center of the cluster because its neighborhood moved? Yes, but uh, that means also that in that area, if this is a very dense area, mostly they are there, that we should be interested about that very, very deep dense area. Then the rest are most outlier. And if there is enough points in here, they will bring this back to this dimension. So if there are like uh, only a few outliers, then it might happen that all the centers move into this one big Yes, yes, but then but then it makes a grid in here. Then the grid will be end up in, in here. If this is very dense, this will end up in here. That is where the majority of the points is, and the rest is just outliers. They're they are so infrequent that they do not affect that map too much. That is my of course to test this you can make a very simple simulation. You can generate this data and see how that behaves. Is that true or not? But I would I would say that probably that's what will happen. Thank you. So the beauty of these clustering methods is of course that you can always generate data. You can make very dense clusters. You can generate more points in here, more in there. You can you can you can generate data and you know exactly how you generate the data. So what is the answer that you should be getting back? When you move to the real data, you don't know what is answered. But based on the based on the intuition that you gain from, from these types of simulations, maybe you can somehow intuitively also understand does it resemble any of the data that I have seen before. Anything else? Self-organizing map is, is nice, uh, kind of I don't know if, if it's fair to say ad hoc method, but it, it, it works um, uh, quite nicely and fast under most of the circumstances. But there is no one final end result. There is no, because you keep training, there is no, uh, how to say, there is no uh, convergence that now it's ready. Yeah. Now you can really stop. It, it keeps emerging and it can, it can move away again in principle. So it's kind of the stopping criterion, you just have to stop. Or 
slow down the trading speed. Then it sort of freezes to some point. Okay, uh, then we have uh, other types of data that is not exactly this type of vector represent representation or tabular representation of the data. We have uh, social networks, uh, Facebooks and Skypes and uh, feedmers for our followers and somebody, we have kind of large graphs, right? Then, the clustering in the large graphs, for example, should somehow idea would be somehow to identify, for example, communities, yeah? communities of friends or, or, or communities of workspace kind of bodies, work bodies or, or training bodies, and uh, find uh, some dense clusters, dense regions in these larger graphs, for example. Uh, then you may need different types of clustering algorithms because the data is. Well, okay, this is some Facebook visualization. Who talks to whom, or who are friends with whom, or other hotspots. Okay, later, later I have I have one example of the graph cluster uh, algorithm. Uh, so this is a different type of data, uh, clustering the network data, clustering the graphs. Uh, this is yet another example of data where we would like to have clustering. We now have the data from medical system where individuals may have different uh, diagnoses assigned. Uh, turns out that people have tens of different diagnoses at the same time. You get older, you get tens of diseases at the same time. Uh, over the over the some longer period, you have you have been ill several times, so you, have, you may have different diagnoses. Somebody else has totally different diseases, and then you have different uh, medications. You have different lab uh, values. Uh, somebody may have high cholesterol. Somebody has cholesterol in nor but has uh, some other uh, values like uh, very low hemoglobin, for example. Uh, demographic can be, of course, very different. Different age groups, uh, different uh, uh, different age, sex, uh, 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 professional status. So all these data are kind of kind of sparse. If you think of this, that how many different things we can measure about individual in the healthcare? There are many, many, many thousands. But for most people, most of the values are missing. We have very few data, right? uh, and they are of very different scales and, and then, uh, uh, different values, different uh, different weight, different scales. So the data is, can be actually quite complex. Yet, if we would be able to somehow cluster these patients based on all the data that we have, we can build these. Oh, these people have these types of diseases, and by the way, they will develop these types of risks for their future uh, life, right? They should, they should try to avoid the risks by doing this and this and that. Or other clusters that are different types of diseases. So based on our uh, different backgrounds, genetics, we may be uh, belonging to different types of uh, risk groups. 
So that's one of the type of the data where we where we analyze these data, we try to get as much information out, uh, but we have not really been able to yet uh, concentrate on this type of clustering type of analysis, really trying to uh, group uh, the patients. Uh, okay, so there is, uh, the point is that we, there is more need to do clustering, customer segmentation, etc. So clustering is a very important uh, way to do these kind of analysis. So we touched hierarchical clustering, k-means, self-organizing maps, and I mentioned the expectation maximization. But there are many other ways uh, that where you can start combining stuff, I said that self-organizing maps plus hierarchical tree thinking. So combining SOM sums over the to generate tree. So you can we can start with the data, we can do the self-organizing map. Not necessarily two by two, we can try to make it linear, one-dimensional map, and split the data to two, four, ten, and then recursively within each to do the same. So then we have the self-organizing map and the tree emerging. Again, you can combine these different uh, methods. Uh, in the graph theory, the, the dense cluster should be something where is, there is lots of connections or sort of if it's really fully connected, it's a click within the large graph. Um, I did mention we always have to define some kind of similarity or, or the distance methods, right? If we want to find some, some things that are close to each other or similar to each other, then we do clustering and hope that this cluster emerges, right? But if you have one example, oh, I really fancy this, uh, I don't know, this, this object. I fancy this object. I fancy this uh, customer, right? They are really good customers. Find me others that are similar, right? Then you can have the, oh, I have the idea of the cluster center. This is the ideal, perfect example. Find me the others that are similar. Then you can, you don't need to do clustering first. You, you can just search for similarity. Which others are similar? and find the, the hundred most similar cases. Uh, so there are different ways to analyze, explore the data. Uh, one of these is, of course, we have been looking at this hierarchical clustering now many times. This is uh, uh, artificially generated clusters, so clusters very well, very strict cluster boundaries, hierarchical clustering over the, I guess it was some one, two, three, four, five, six, nine-dimensional nine space. Imagine visualizing nine-dimensional space. Of course, by color you can do that, but how do we convert that into three-dimensional space? Yeah. So all the data actually are mapped through so-called principal component analysis. Uh, all the nine dimensions are mapped to lower-dimensional space, which in this case is three-dimensional which you can quote visual. Uh, what principal component analysis really does is illustration is in theory two dimensions if you have a cloud of points, it tries to fit or tries to understand in which direction the data is spread out the most. Which direction gives you the biggest uh, sort of widest distribution. 
if we, if we look along this direction, then the data really clearly divides widely, right? So this is the first principal component, and the next principal component is then something that is orthogonal to the first one. And the next dimension along which it is stretched out the most, right? Uh, so, principal component analysis of multivariate Gaussian distribution, uh, centered at one, one three, uh, standard deviation, blah blah blah, interaction which directions. So there is eigenvectors of the covariance matrix, and that's how these are being calculated. So it identifies these kind of dimensions. This is a high-dimensional data. Each row is one object. Right? If we scramble the rows and the columns, that's how this looks. Right? So what is on the picture? And that's the, the homework task. We scrambled only the the rows and the question what was on the picture. The thinking is that when you go one row to the next, they are similar, right? But in here, in the mix, data comes mixed, you have to somehow put order upon this, or try to understand. It's high dimensional, maybe a thousand dimensions, plus in here, uh, thousands or more uh, objects. In here, there is a very natural heat map representation, because we define that this is uh, red, green, blue values, it's, uh, that's how we visualize that. that, that's a heat map. But if, if there is uh, high dimensional data, then there is no, not always this standard uh, heat map rep representation, then what should be the principal component analysis of this? That would convert all the rows and columns or all, basically all the data if this is uh, n, uh, n objects in n-dimensional space, then it tries to fit the first principal component through this high-dimensional space through which the data is most spread out. Uh, maybe that in some column there are pixels ranging from black to white, right? For example, black-white axis. So, principal component analysis would allow us to take this high-dimensional data and plot it, the first two principal components plot it in two dimensions, like this. So first principal component and the second one, and what emerges in here is that, of course you can explain it now that you look at that, that of course there seems to be some trace which is a very natural order through the through these uh, rows uh, that gives restores us the original image as good as possible. Right? So if you would like to go from here to the to this, the natural way to ask is somehow can we make the similarity sort of like most similar? Can we can we find some root through the rows that gives us the let's say traveling salesman solution through all the data points. Minimizes the overall pathway. And in here it's kind of visually intuitive that 
indeed, if you can manage to fit uh, the path through in here, that probably is pretty good restoration of that part of the image. So image has very nice kind of uh, um, surprising principle component analysis view. This is the first and second. The same first, on the first dimension, it's exactly the same distribution, but now the, the third axis has different uh, view on that. So that's kind of three-dimensional space now that we are trying to uh, visualize through the projections on the first uh, dimension. Uh, first and third, and second and third. Still, every time there is some kind of uh, path uh, through the data. For this image, uh, what should be the what the principal component analysis should look like? Is there the same similar kind of very strict path through through the rows in here? Okay, so so this is the image, or this is the mix, right? You, you start from this. This is the data. You don't know anything about that. How many clusters, or what, what should be, what what type of methods you should be applying in here? We know how we generated this data, right? From here, we generated this one. But this is essential when you feed the data to the computer. It doesn't know. It's just numerical vectors. Try to make a sense out of that. Um, there are probably, there must be some uh, clusters because all these rows are very similar, or, or all, the vector, all the columns in here are exactly the same. Right? There is some watermarks in here. That's why there is small variation. But most of they should be very similar. Uh, but there is necessarily no, no sort of continuous path through the pixel space. So maybe the principal component analysis should look a little bit different. Right? So you take this, you throw data you have not seen at all, you, can't, you don't know how to visualize this, you don't know that this is uh, RGB cores, just some data, you throw the principal component analysis and that's what you get. Uh, there is no single path, but there are some clusters, obvious clusters, right? Actually, quite a few of them. Quite a large number of clusters. So your K-means clustering, if you would apply, you, would, you should probably be aiming at something like 20 clusters, perhaps. So if you start from, if you start from this, you don't know what to do. You may do uh, principal component analysis. And maybe you see needed, aha, it's clearly clustered. And roughly, how about how many clusters there will be? We started from high dimensional space, but now we show you two dimensional representation of that data. So this is principal component one and two, one and three. 
2 and 3. All of them roughly talk about the same uh, about the same story that it's, it has a number of uh, classes. Maybe there, maybe there are lots of overlapping points in here because there are lots of similar rows or similar columns. Maybe they are overlapping in here. Uh, the cl cluster, we, we showed that these uh, n rows where we mixed uh, rows and columns, like this data. But the cluster should be something that, well, normally you would cluster than rows, or columns, or both. But principal component analysis does, it doesn't know anything about the cluster. It, it tries to think of this as very high dimensional data, really high dimensional data in thousand dimensions spread out, and tries to find the, the one of these projections, one, one direction through the thousand dimensions. That where the data is spread out the most. And that's the first principal component. And then you try orthogonal to that some other direction, and that's the second principal component. And third and fourth. And each principal component will, will explain some percentage of the variance of the entire data. From here to get the image? Yeah. Well, you, from here, from here you. From here. Uh, well, this is just illustration of uh, two components, right? But, but if you would. Well, basically, you, you could say that uh, I know exactly what point is what. You could try to do this shortest path through all the points. What is the shortest path? I travel in sales and forward. What is the, if these are the cities in some strange country, then what is the shortest path through all the cities uh, where you visit each city once? No, of course you would actually do that in the, in the original data. You would do that on the original data, actually. But, but this just visualizes some of the components. And, and the, where I try to argue that probably the rows that were next to each other should be very close in here, because they are relatively similar rows, right? But even looking at the two principal components already, you can see this path emerging. Most of the natural data does not look like that. You can you can attempt principal component analysis. Trust me, they do not look like that. So in here there are some uh, clusters. So this is the image, and now we do the reverse. This is the image, and you do what I said. You do the principal component analysis. You get this one. So from this image, the principal component analysis. And the question is, what is on the image? What type of image that might be that gives us this type of principal component analysis? 
I made this this morning. So <laughs> um, I'm not expecting that there is answer. If, if somebody does, then then you're super smart and you should be in front in here. But you can give it a try. Well, there are, there are clearly some sort of uh, some sort of uh, endpoints are stretched throughout the, the regions, and then there are some joining paths between them, alternating perhaps between the two things, but then also going to the extremes in there. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm just waving hands in here. So the first and second, the first and third. Not that it would make any any easier to think. Maybe you could rotate that in three dimensions. The second and third. Yeah, there is some. There are some paths in here. Um, but what what might be the clusters or what types of things? Um, it's this thing. Probably this road to that is sort of like opposite sides, but you can you can test that because you, you know exactly which point is which road, right? Uh, if, you, if you can take this and know exactly the two rows, which point is which? I I have not done that, but you can take the two rows and map in here and see is it this or that or is it that 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 and that? You can do that. Uh, so, if you would take very strict checkerboard, then you would have only, only like a, a, a white, black, white, black, sort of four types of uh, rows, if you do shuffling of both rows and columns. Uh, we, have, we have tried that actually, so if you, if you start this image reconstruction from just checkerboard, perfect checkerboard, with eight by eight, black and white, you end up doing uh, two by two, white, black, uh, black, white, um, and design. By the way, uh, <laughs> I, I do not speak fluent R. You are much better in R. But uh, yesterday I tried this out, and this is the code that made, uh, made me these uh, images. You read the table, you drop the first slide, you drop the, there was some NA at the end, you drop the last column, you drop the uh, row identities, and you just do the principal component analysis, uh, you get different scores, first to third, principal component. Of course, you Google for it, you copy paste, and you, you plot the first and second uh, uh, from these scores. So, um, so that's how that's how I got these meetings. Um, when you know about the data better, like in this case, image. We, I just showed the image as, as how, how do I get the data? But it's kind of stupid to think that we only scramble images and then reconstruct images. That's not the goal. Just the illustration of, of how the analysis works. Um, if you know your data, uh, like uh, like analysis of hierarchical uh, clustering analysis, you see the, 
that kind of uh, patterns that there is some uh, 10, 11 columns in here. Actually, actually the, this data is real data from mouse embryos. You take the embryo, you, you fertilize the egg, you get the day zero. You know, uh, mouse has sex, fertilizes egg, you have the day zero. Then uh, it starts splitting, you have day one, day two, three, etc. Now there is already, you, you get one from one cell to two, four, eight, sixteen cells divide and start emerging something that starts to be a, like a ball and then starts uh, the external surface, internal mass, and you develop all these different uh, head, tail, left, right axis, you start developing the organs. Uh, it's, a, it, it's a very complicated, in a way it's a very complicated process of course. Yeah? Simplistically you just split the uh, cell to 2 and 4 and 8, emerge into some globular structure, and then you start developing some differentiation, different types of cells are on the surface and inside, and then you start emerging these different types of cells. In the beginning it's a very rapid process, but then it slows down. The question is over these different days, uh, in the beginning you have some switches, some active genes, then you switch them off, the next program kicks in. In the next day you have some other program that keeps it running for a couple of days. Then switches off the next one, right? So from here you can see that genes that have been active in the beginning, then they are deactivated. Just active for the first day, then deactivated. Uh, and then the question is how do we identify all the genes related to certain days? So the genes that are activated in the first day and switched immediately off for the second, just four genes. Activated in day one, but then they are active for two days, for three days, four days, five days, six days, seven days, eight days, and switched off. So, uh, we want to identify certain types of genes active in those processes, and instead of going through the just standard clustering, what is in here is that we define a specific type of pattern. Like, not active, 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 not active, we have the profile and we search. You can define the customer profile and then search, is there anybody that resembles this profile? You get all the customers that resemble that profile. Not by clustering, but by doing the query, the database. So in here, uh, uh, just a, in a way you get the clustering, but how you get it is by defining what you want to get. And you organize the data by, by activity in the day zero, starting activity at day one, two, three, four, five, six, just for one day. On the sixth day, uh, on the sixth day active, and then switches off. Four genes <coughs> only are active in the sixth day of development. <coughs> so you can imagine how, how important that knowledge may be for the biologists to try to understand what the heck is going on in the in this embryo development? At that sixth day, what do these four genes do? Uh, 
and the opposite, uh, sort of when something is active and deactivated, there is also opposite, all the time active, but just repressed for one or two days uh, in here. Just represent something was, was switched on, 122 genes were switched on for that period, but at the same time, 31 were switched off. That's how nature has programmed the biology, the development. You get something activated, you have to suppress something else. And then something else. So it's kind of incredible programming machine in there. Right? And the outcome is always, almost always very perfect. You have the same length of arms and very, very deterministic outcome. Uh, and what happens in, in the development, just, just to give you the hint, is also that we start developing these different, different types of cells. In the beginning, the, it's very active uh, cell multiplication, but then to get the hand, hands or sort of something, uh, uh, organism has to kill many cells. So you grow cells, but you also kill something to get the you kill the cells in between to get the finger separated. Right? The self-suicide of the cells, or apoptosis. Uh, cells are committing a suicide themselves. Yeah? You program some cells for the program cell death. These are the these are the words from the biology: program cell death or uh, apoptosis. We don't know how all this programming happens, but that's that's how the biology works. And we can help biologists to find some of that explanation here. Uh, what's one piece of evidence like there is no change we can destroy it? No, there was, uh, there was uh, for this pattern, for uh, deactivated at day three and deactivated for two days, there was no representative. Given the query parameters of correlation measure uh, at 0 0.8 or 0.85. So that was a very precise query. For these parameters, there was no other pattern. So, so there is one very strict line that is a query, but all the rest is what, it, what we fetch from the data. Okay, so uh, clustering and, and analysis is really. Like you get to learn your data, different types of data. You, you get to learn it, you get to understand what the data is, what it is not. And you may have very specific uh, questions to your data. Um, one of the problems is that data is high dimensional. Most of the data is very high dimensional. Uh, I will show you the, the image data, high dimension, but there was very, very clear pattern for the image. Yeah. There were very, very similar data points. But the problem is that when you add, imagine this one, I, I just did it two dimensions, but if I add dimensions and start making points in here and there, I add fourth dimension, put other points in there and there. And every time I add a point, uh, the dimension, in a way, all the points get separated by longer and longer distance. Your data distance goes 
to every dimension, measures the difference, makes it square. Even if in one dimension there, there happen to be four, you make it even farther. Yeah. Uh, so in the high-dimensional space, there is a problem what is so-called curse of dimensionality. When you go to high-dimensional spaces, then everything seems very from, far from each other. And the concept of similarity kind of breaks down because everything is far from each other. There is not the concept that these are very close and these are very far. Right? Everything is far, almost approximately about the same distance from each other as anything else. So that is the problem with the very high dimensional spaces normally. Uh, so principal component analysis was one way to try to bring the dimensionality down. Right? There are these analog methods, principal component analysis, singular value decomposition, different statistic methods that try to reduce the dimensionality. Uh, in here, one way to reduce the dimensionality is to somehow, when we have the high-dimensional space, uh, three-dimensional, high-dimensional space, then the clustering somehow you could you could try to you could try to look at the data from different projections one two three you, you can you can try to project the data through the data points and find the find the projection in the principal component analysis we said that it finds the distribution of the data it's it's not one project one dimension it's to the point of cloud a cloud of points uh, but but now in this uh, you could think that if you try to project the data from different, from there, from there, up, down, in this case three projections, and try to see if any of the projections, like in here, you have three-dimensional point uh, space, but projected to different two dimensions, uh, you may get different distribution, right? In here, just on this dimension, you don't you get two peaks of density. In here, you have very clear two peaks, right? You could do this uh, density function on this, along this dimension projection and identify two clusters, right? Uh, if we separate the two clusters, then maybe on this dimension, we could separate the two blues from each other. But if that one does not split the uh, greens from the reds, but, but in, this, in this direction, you can split the two groups. You can apply this one to separate these. And maybe we can apply in here the dimension to separate the, uh, blue, uh, the, the, blue, the reds from the greens. So, so you can start from, high, uh, from multiple dimensions, but by looking from different angles to that data, you may be able to identify clusters if they are separate. Subspace clustering. Which clustering method would apply in here? From anything that we have covered so far. Sorry? K means? Of course, K means you can apply always. 
you could get one cluster like in here, right? Or you could get cluster that is there or in here. Is that what you want to have? When you look at this cluster, and then how, how many clusters do you see? Six, clearly six clusters. Which of the methods gives us six clusters in, in this case? Hierarchical. Hierarchical with a single link may give you some of that, because with a single link you may somehow be able to link together majority of this, but you, you may also randomly jump over to that cluster. So the, the problem is that in here, this and this point, they are not so similar to each other. They are much more similar to the point in the middle, right? That is clearly the different cluster. Right? So as the name in here says, uh, of course, we somehow intuitively would like to get the density, somehow map the density on this data, right? The dense region. And not to care about the sparse regions in between. So how do we define the density? And how do we find, define the, uh, the sparse regions? What is the density? Points per area. Points per area. So we have to define the area and how many points we call dense. So with these two parameters, area and number of points, we can do the following. We can well, the, the area is specified by radius, epsilon, and number of points. And then, for every point in here, we can look at its neighborhood. For every point in here, we can look at that epsilon neighborhood, count how many points are these, and then say, is this in the dense region or not? This is in the dense region. This one? No. This one may be outside. Let's ignore that. Uh, this one is not in the dense region. Right? This one is not in the dense region. Maybe there is not enough points around it. But some of the neighbors it has in the neighborhood happen to be in the dense region. So this one is uh, sparse, so there is nothing around. This has this is, does not have enough around, but some that it has actually are dense, comes from dense region. So we, based on this simple concept of, of epsilon and the number of points, the density, you can tell apart the dense points, uh, the, the outliers, and something that is called the border. Uh, so noise or outlier, core or dense point, and the, this is a border point, this is not in the dense region, but it overlaps. Within this neighborhood, there is something that is in the dense region. Uh, so this is the intuition in here. For every point, we can define into three classes. And then, uh, this is just another illustration, the core points, the border points, the noise point. Uh, uh, okay, so this was the data, and we said that we can identify three types of uh, points. The dense ones are green, the noise ones are the, the reds, and the border ones are the blues. 
So there is a little bit of X region in here. See that there is, there are some tense points in there. But this is what we get from the first analysis. And now we can start saying that, oh, okay, let's start from some tense point and label it the first cluster. And let's look at it neighbor, tense point, the same cluster. Uh, neighborhood, the same, uh, the same, in the dense neighborhood, you can go through a label to the same cluster. Dense neighborhood all the time, label it to the same cluster. One direction to the other direction. Dense neighborhood, we label it to the same cluster, right? Then you take another point, you start labeling this neighborhood to the second cluster. Um, so, just starting from somewhere, dense, 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 you can, you can walk through the data points and label it to the same cluster as long as they are in the same dense connected area. Algorithm for all core points, if core point has no cluster label yet, then you define it a new uh, label, uh, label it uh, with this new label. Uh, other kind, uh, other, uh, otherwise, if, if core point has no cluster label, and if, ah, now it has cluster label. Otherwise, it also has cluster label. Now, you look at everything it's in its neighborhood, except itself, and label uh, everything into the same uh, cluster. So that's the algorithm. You first identify the types of point, then you go on through all the points, and carry on the same label to everything that is in the same dense region. So from here, you get this, this example. So you get one, two, three, four, five, six uh, clusters. If I remember correct, one of the slides showed in here some dense regions, so that should be uh, the next cluster, but uh, illustration, the one who made the illustrations did not probably notice that. They didn't change the parameters. So from this data, we can get intuitively to the case uh, that we, what we wanted with this method. In sound compression. I I don't think so. I think for noise, for sound, for signal processing, there are specific methods dedicated to those. This is a relatively slow process. If you think you have to find the epsilon neighborhoods, search, etc. So this is not so fast actually. And for sound, for, for, for video, sound, these are real-time uh, signals. So for that, you have signal processing methods. You can have these Fourier transformation methods, like image compression, JPEG, MPEG, different image compression algorithms. Uh, you apply some, for example, Fourier transform, and you only look at the biggest, strongest signals. You only care about that. In the image, you don't care about a lot of noise. You just apply this strongest signal first, and then you eliminate all the rest. Automatically, you get rid of that very quickly. You can, most of that is implemented in the hardware. So you get very, very, very quick processing of, of uh, sound and, and image. But this is, uh, this is the illustration of the DB uh, scanner or this kind of uh, density-based clustering scanning uh, where that 
on this particular data set, uh, it was shown that this worked, right? But it does not work always. Like, like these cases where you can clearly, by visual, identify this one cluster, second, third, within this cluster there are some dense regions. This density scanning would not work, right? Because the density is in here is sparse. In here it's different threshold. In here it's very dense. You can't apply the same density throughout your data. So DB scan would not work on this case. Uh, you can change epsilon 9.75 minimum points 4. You get one cluster, right? One, two, three cluster. Four points in 9.75 radius. Four points in 9.92 radius. You get only one, two, three, and all the rest is noise. So small change in here causes totally different output. Again, artificially generated data, just counterexample where that breaks down. Right? You can come up with counterexamples when your method or one method will break down. Some other method must be better for this. So, and then you make the counterexample, and then you say, think, okay, how to overcome this kind of problem? You may try to adjust the density in different regions. Uh, you may try to improve the methods. And of course, there are papers that try to improve these methods, uh, uh, provide better density based methods. But the basic principle is just dense area that you can identify. Uh, this is, you can take all the points, calculate all different distances, calculate and show, for example, for, for, for every, we looked in here, the minimum points is four, some radius. Yeah. You can ask for every point, how far is the fourth closest point? If you are in the dense region, the fourth one is also very close, right? If you are in the sparse one, then the fourth one is quite far. And this is what is plotted in here, uh, sorted by the distance to the fourth nearest ever. You can see that this is how it grows. Of course, in here you get uh, long distance, so you maybe you maybe identify the distance at somewhere. You may try to identify uh, at some distance. I, I don't know five, for example, or may, maybe in here. But everything that was in this radius you would get in the same cluster. Maybe one. More. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the same data. 9.75, maybe no, 9.75. Yeah, maybe maybe it is the same data. In this case, it would be here breaking uh, this thing. Uh, different libraries, applications supported by. You need you need uh, multi-dimensional neighborhood search. So applications uh, supported by these indexing structures, multi-dimensional searches uh, for this kind of density. Uh, this is optics clustering, which is kind of density-based method. You can find all these libraries and play play with these. Uh, so, so we will stop in here. Roughly saying again. The clustering analysis, we have the concept of similarity, and we try to find the clusters of the similar uh, uh, examples. Everything that is outside are spanned outliers. Identifying outliers is also important, of course. Um, so it's uh, entire 
important area where we care about scalability, how fast algorithms are, what types of attributes you can deal with, can you deal with arbitrary shape clusters? How much do you demand from the user to tune the parameters? Oh, there is a user interface with 10 parameters. You just put in whatever you want. How many of users can put in the 10 parameters? Reason. So ideal methods should have really little parameters. They should be able to deal with noise. Then depending on the data order, uh, they should come be relatively stable, except for the maps were not exactly. And incrementally getting new data in should not break your whole process. Or you should be able to update the process. You should be able to deal with the high dimensionality, uh, other types of constraints. And of course, you end up with this, are the end results interpretable and usable for some application? So that's, uh, but these are kind of the goals, and you can think how many different clustering algorithms actually try to try to deal with these kinds of uh, uh, issues. Okay, uh, I stop in here, and uh, next time we uh, keep talking on on the bodies of similarity between the points, uh, visualizing these things, and also start talking about the the serialization or ordering of the data. I will close this.